you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him. While the mouths of liars will be silenced. Thanks, Jen. Good morning, everybody. Morning. Okay, so this morning concludes our uh, mini-series on the Psalms, and I thought it would be good just to recap. If you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 61, and Rich spoke about that roller coaster ride, you know, what is it that's strapping you in? Where's your security? And about Jesus, the rock that we cling to. And then Stuart last week spoke from Psalm 62, you know, the importance of stopping and slowing down, and that it's not great faith that matters, but a little faith in a great God. And this morning, here we are in Psalm 63, which was written at that same period of David's life, you know, when he he was on the run against that backdrop of the Judean wilderness. And I've actually got a picture for us, if we can have that picture, please. Because I think sometimes it's just good to kind of see it and visualise it. So here is the Judean desert. It's a desert that stretches on out for miles and miles and miles. It's a really barren place, very little life. Water is is in short supply. And, And the dry, hot sun beats down mercilessly on those who venture through it. And um, just looking at that picture makes me feel thirsty. And I don't know this morning if you've ever experienced real desperate thirst. You know, we we have this thing with our kids where um, at home they've got access to drinks and water. And and as their mum, I have to kind of practically have to force them to drink to make sure they drink enough. However, when we go into town, the moment we step into town, normally about the point in the Eden Centre, where we're just walking past the milkshake shop, yeah, they seem to experience this overwhelming longing and thirst for a drink. And expressions like, oh, mum, I'm so thirsty. If I don't have a drink, I'm going to die. These are not uncommon. And actually, a Mark too, you know, he seems to have the same problem. You know, when we pass Starbucks or... Cafe Nero, particularly when the list of errands we have to do is long and, and, and time is short, he seems to experience this, this overwhelming, desperate longing for a coffee. So um, we get thirsty, yes, but the language that this psalm describes, 
is, on a, is, is like a thirst on a whole different level. I thirst. I long. I cling to you. This is David in a really dry and desperate wilderness place. And this morning, I want us to explore this psalm because I think we all face our own wilderness of sorts. It might not look like the Judean desert, but there are definite seasons in our life where it kind of feels like a long journey through landscape that doesn't appear to change. And the thing that we long and thirst for most seems out of reach or just impossible to find. And, you know, it's a really well-known psalm, and it's one that's come up many times in my own life. And it reflects this relationship with God that each one of us are invited into this morning. And I think in looking at how David responds when life is not all going smoothly and everything's been stripped away, we can find some fundamental principles that help us to experience the richness of this relationship with God to the full. And I think that particularly in this society that we live in, where how we feel and and our ever-changing emotions very much drive the way we act and, and the decisions we make, This psalm points to a different way, where rather than depending on how we feel, we stand on the truth of what we know. And um, and there are four points I want to pull out from this psalm this morning. I know, I'm straying from the three-point talk. This could be dangerous. But um, do open your Bibles, and if you can turn with me, uh, we're going to just look at the first few verses of the psalm. So David writes this. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And the first point that I want to look at this morning is that here is David in this dry and and weary land on the run, as we spoke about last week, from his son Absalom. All his kingly comforts are left back in Jerusalem. He's got no idea what the future holds. But the first thing he declares in this psalm is, You, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. And he keeps God right at the centre of his life. The, The other needs, the other longings and worries, they do not displace God's place in his heart. His relationship with God remains the priority. You, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. And when we stop and consider our own wilderness, I wonder what is the thing that we earnestly seek and look for? Because it's very easy to slip into allowing other things in our lives to become our our God, our idol, if you like. The thing that we, we discover holds that number one slot in our heart. And Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, describes an idol like this. It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. So our idols, I mean, this might be family, it might be our kids, it might be career, making money. Perhaps it's achievement or, or kind of your social standing. Maybe it's a romantic relationship. 
or people's approval. It, it might just be the need to have a secure and comfortable circumstances. It might be your looks, your intelligence. It might even be success in kind of Christian ministry. And all of these things, you know, they're not bad in themselves, but sometimes it's in that place of wilderness when those things are taken from us that, or are in short supply that we discover how much they, abs- they actually absorb our hearts. Um, I work for a corporate communications agency. Um, we design annual reports, websites. We help companies develop their brand strategy, that kind of thing. And part of my role is business development. So quite a bit of my time is spent out networking, um, kind of looking for developing opportunities, bringing in new, new business. And as part of that process, we get invited to pitch for projects. And typically, we'll be up against anywhere between two and five other agencies and we'll be given this brief. And then for the next few weeks, I, I pretty much eat, sleep and breathe this pitch. You know, we'll, we'll put together a, a proposal. My creative team will come up with um, concepts. We'll find out as much as we can about the company and, and the people we're seeing. And then the day of the presentation arrives. And in I go with my team. The adrenaline kicks in as all the work of the past few weeks hangs on the 45 minutes we have to present to the panel. And actually, it's a lot of fun. But you know what? The best bit is a few days later or a week later when you get that phone call and they say, oh, Jenny, really liked your presentation. Creative work was spot on. We want to appoint you the business. That's brilliant, that's fantastic, particularly if we smashed it against one of the big boy London agencies. Yes, that's great, it's fantastic. And that feeling of winning, it can, it can feel almost intoxicating. And then you get a run of wins, and oh my goodness, I'm flying high, woohoo! You know, I believe that God wants us to work hard and to be good at what we do. But sometimes I know that I fall into making success and winning an idol in its own right, the water that I need to sustain me. But the problem is it's water that runs out, you know? It's water that doesn't actually quench. It just leaves you wanting more. Because then those seasons come where you don't win. You know, oh, sorry, afraid you're just a bit too expensive. Oh, the competition was really stiff, and the other agency, they just had the edge with their creative work. And down I come. <laughs> with a very big bump. And, and I find myself in, in my own kind of place of wilderness of sorts, not, not, not really sure how long I'm going to be here, but longing for another win, longing for another drink of that, that sweet success. And when you're in that place, it's really easy to be so focused on the thing that you long for that everything else takes second place. My relationship with God, my family my friendships, believe in the lie that if I can just bring in that next big account, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll have time for all those other things. David declared, you God, you God are my God. And I'm learning that in order to keep God central in my life, sometimes I need to declare it when I don't necessarily feel it, you know? to just stop and say, no, no, actually, it's you, God, you're my God, not all this other stuff. And I'm going to be intentional about finding you in the midst of it. And there's something that when we say it, 
even when we don't particularly feel it, that in his grace God moves and, and something shifts in our hearts and then we can begin to live it again. So let me ask you this morning, are there other things that have taken that central spot in your life? And do you need to just stop and allow that repositioning of your heart as you say with intention, oh God, you are my God. But there might be some of you this morning, you're saying, well, why is it so important that God is number one in our lives? You know, surely there, there are times when other things need to take priority. And this brings me on to the second point that I want to make this morning. David recognized that whilst he had all of these other needs, they actually point to a deeper need, his relationship with God. And it's in this relationship that we are satisfied that everything we need is found in him. And he writes in, in, if we go on to verse 2, he writes this, I've seen you in the sanctuary and I've beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with the richest of foods. And with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Now, if anyone is going to know about the richest of foods, a king is going to know, yeah? But David has experienced something that far outweighs all the things that he's lost. And he's lost a lot at this point in his life, you know? But he recognizes that the peace and and the happiness that our souls long for is not actually found in our circumstances being perfect, but in, but in walking through life with a God who has all the resources we could ever possibly need. And you know, this, this was the relationship that sustained him through kind of years as a teenager looking after sheep on, in this very wilderness. You know, this was the God that gave him the courage to go up against the lions and the bears and even the mighty Goliath when no one else dared. This was the relationship. This is the God who was there when he was on the run from, from King Saul, when he'd been betrayed. And this is the God who forgave him when he, he messed up so spectacularly. And the reason we, at times, we allow other desires and wants and longings in our lives to become an idol is because we believe they provide the thing we need to sustain us. And this is simply not true. Professor Joad was a man who was a real kind of atheist. But then he was converted to Christianity. And and he wrote this. He said, trying to find happiness from this world is like trying to light up a dark room by lighting a succession of matches. You strike one. It flickers for a moment and then it goes out. But when you find Jesus Christ, it is as though the whole room is suddenly flooded with light. And David makes a statement, my soul will be satisfied with the richest of foods. And years later, um, Jesus, as he's talking to the woman at the well, he makes this promise. He says, whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of, of water welling up to eternal life. And we're invited into this relationship where God wants to reveal his glory and his power in our everyday lives, yeah? 
to love us unconditionally, the way we're meant to be loved. And it's in his presence that, that we find this peace that does not depend on our circumstances, but kind of passes all understanding. If you were here on Easter Sunday, right at the end of the service, Katie sang and there's like a whole queue of people that stood out here and they held up these right white boards with statements about what God had done in their lives. And, and actually it was incredibly powerful. You know, so, some of them just made me want to cry. They were so beautiful. Um, one person held up this board that said depressed, medicated and hopeless. And, and then they flipped the, the board over and it said healed, restored, joy in Christ. And then another person held up this board that said guilt, shame, and in a really dark place. And they flipped the board and it said, saw God's love for me. No condemnation. Changed my life completely. And you know, there was example after example of how God had met with people and provided for their needs, transformed situations, and changed their lives completely. He is able to satisfy what is beneath our deepest longings, not just on occasion, but over and over and over again in different ways as we walk through life with him. And you might not have ever experienced this relationship with God. You know, you know you long for something, but you've never actually found that thing that ultimately satisfies. And if that's you, you know, I really want to encourage you this morning, make this the day. Come and talk to, to, to one of us after. We'd love to speak to you on, on what it means to have this life-changing relationship with God. But I also feel that there's many of us here this morning, and we do know Jesus. But we've lost sight of that truth, that he is the only one who can truly satisfy. And we've kind of got out of the habit of coming to him with our needs. You know how easy it is to settle for something other than the richest of foods, you know, to depend on that glass of wine at the end of the day to get us through, you know, to, to drive ourselves harder and harder to succeed, to post those pictures on social media to ensure we get the likes that temporarily satisfy our need for acceptance. David's longing for God reflects not just a one-off visit, but intentionally seeking out his presence over and over again. And I think this is so important. You know, we need to keep coming back to him. Because we do that, we find that despite our circumstances, our souls can be satisfied with the richest of foods. And the third point that I want to make this morning is that David trusts God as, as his protector, as his place of shelter, He writes this, on my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Now, last week, Stuart asked us the question, what does your worst day look like? And I actually want to ask you another question this morning. What does your worst night look like? Because we've all had them, haven't we? Those nights where you find yourself awake in the early hours and you're desperately trying to go to sleep, but there's a thousand things going through your head, worries and fears and, and, and this kind of situation, and, and you're just trying to get to sleep, but it won't come. And you just long for the morning to come. And David writes this um, psalm from a place of vulnerability. 
He's on the run. He's not entirely sure he can trust, but he paints this beautiful picture of God as his protector. And he describes how he remembers God through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And you know, this, this bit of the psalm, it's particularly special to me. Um, when our youngest, Sefi, was six months old, um, we had to take him to paediatrics at Wickham because dis- we discovered this swelling on his testicle. And, um, and they kind of sat us down. They told us all the likely scenarios that it would be fine. But then they explained the kind of worst-case scenario that it was a mass, it, it would be a mass, a, a tumour. And... Um, and so we had to take him for a scan, and, um, and I'll never forget sitting there in, in the little room in uh, Wickham Hospital and watching as this dark, menacing shadow appeared on the screen, and all the polite chit-chat from the sonographer just ground to a halt, and it literally felt like the air had been sucked out of my lungs and nobody said anything, and, and as I said, what, what, what is that? What, what does that mean? There was just silence. And then in the meetings that followed, we met with a consultant who explained that, unfortunately, it was a mass, um, and, it, and they were going to need to operate, and, and then potentially there could be chemo, and all these things. And as a parent, it is the worst possible thing to hear. You know, you just feel so helpless. And... Um, and, you know, I've really learned through that the reality of what it means to cling onto God. And um, thankfully, they were able to operate. And praise God, they were able to remove the, the tumour and he didn't require further chemo. But, you know, when I look back over that period of our lives, the thing that I remember most is at that point where I felt so desperate, so vulnerable, so helpless, the way that God was right there in the midst of of that situation, the way it's as though he did, he spread his wings over our family and we felt him holding us close, you know, and I, I know what it meant to have a long night, you know, there were nights where I would just wake up and and my head would be full of the what if, what if, you know, when we're waiting for test results, what if, and it was as if God took my face in his hands and he said, stop thinking about the what ifs, just look at me. And in that moment, I knew that what, kind of whatever the future held, we didn't know what was going to happen, but that I could trust him and that he was going to hold us up through it. But, you know, there's been other times where I find myself in, in, in that place of feeling vulnerable and exposed quite simply because I've made a series of not particularly wise choices, you know, where I've not trusted God and I've ignored him and, and I've thought that my way was better. And when you look at David's current predicament, his son's revolt, and, and you track back a bit, you see a catalogue of not particularly wise parenting um, decisions. Um, you know, David's failure to act when his son Amnon rapes his sister Tamar. So much so that Absalom intervenes and and murders his brother. But again, David fails to act. So this is not a happy family history. Um, And finally, Absalom resolves to overthrow his father. And actually, this stint in the wilderness, this is the result of that very coup. 
And some of the situations that I found myself in over the years, you might expect that God would kind of fold his arms and say, well, Jen, you got yourself in that one. Let's see how you get yourself out. Yeah, because sometimes that, that can be our perception of how God is going to react. You know, but I have to say, when I've come to him, this has not been my experience, and neither was it David's. We have a God who, when we cry out to him, stretches out his wings, and he gathers us un- under it into his protection. And in Matthew 23, Jesus uses a similar picture as he cries, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those I sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers chicks under, its wing, under her wings. And if you're in that place where you are feeling vulnerable and exposed this morning, I really want you to hear the truth of God's heart for you. That no matter how you've reached that place, his heart is to gather you to himself and to shelter you under his wing. Yes, there's consequences to our actions. But when we cry out, when we come to him, he never leaves us out there on our own to face the elements. He always draws us in. But the final point that I want to make this morning is that we have an enemy who does not want us to know any of this and definitely does not want us to walk in the type of relationship with God that this psalm describes. The Bible teaches us that our fight is not against people, against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers. And particularly when we find ourselves in that place of wilderness, when we're struggling, when we feel exposed and vulnerable, the enemy works really hard to distract us, to lie to us, and, and kind of to stoke the fires of, of anxiety and fear. You know, oh, goodness, this is an absolute nightmare. This is hopeless. There is no end to this. You're never going to get back on track financially. You're a failure. You've let your family down. And so he goes on. But David finishes his psalm with these words. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for the jackals. But the king rejoices in God. And all who swear by God's name will praise him. While the mouths of liars will be silenced. And one of the things that I've always admired about David is the way that he viewed his enemies in the light of who his God was. You know, so so when everyone else was kind of trembling in fear and stressing about the whole Goliath situation, David is straight in there, you know, with that statement, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. And this day, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and I'll cut off your head. And as we know, that's exactly what happened. And we see this again in this final part of the psalm, David's perspective of the power that his enemies have over him is shaped by his faith in God. And I do think that we need to be aware that there is an enemy that pursues us. But also to know the truth of what his future looks like. And here's the point. He is already defeated and his days are numbered. You know, when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he broke the power that Satan had. He sentenced him to death and 
everything changed. You know, and as a child of God, you do not have to put up with the lies and the torment that he will try and put over you. He has no power and authority over us because of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. And whilst I'm not into giving the enemy credit, I've, I've really seen this at play recently in my own life, where we face some really difficult situations as a family, and, and I've just allowed him to chip away for far too long with his lies. But when I bring that same situation before my God, when I lay it at his feet and I earnestly seek him, it's like the lights go on, and I remember who my God is. And I do not have to stand for any of the enemy's lies. So in finishing this morning, I want to say this. I believe that Psalm 63 is a psalm for the wilderness. But also that quite simply, it's a psalm for life. It's a psalm that says, no matter how I feel, I'm going to remember who my God is and I'm going to stand on truth. It's a psalm about responding in faith in the midst of our circumstances, responding in what we know of God rather than what we feel in that place. It's an active response. And as we finish this morning, I want us to consider if there's an active response that we need to make. And I think for some, it's about making a declaration of faith, you know, that you are my God and, and placing Jesus back in that central point in our hearts. And for others, you've got out of the habit of coming to God and you've settled for other things and, and it's about recognising once again that he is all you need, you know? That he's got the best and just coming back to him to draw from his presence. But I also think there's those and you really are walking in the midst of that wilderness place. You do feel vulnerable, you do feel desperate, you do feel exposed. And it's about choosing to trust him, to cling to him and allowing him into that situation so he can spread his wings over you and draw you close. And finally, for some, you recognize that you've allowed the enemy too much ground and authority in your life. And it's an opportunity to remember who your God is and walk free from the lies that the enemy has spoken over you. Psalm 63, a psalm for the wilderness, but definitely a psalm for life. Amen.